Businesses thrive by knowing customer insights because today's insights are tomorrow's facts. At iResearch, we live and breathe insights. And despite searching high and low, we were unable to find a customer insights podcast that answers one of the most important questions in business. Why do customers do what they do? So we launched one. Hi, I'm your host, Darshan Mehta. I'd like to welcome Katrina German. She is the founder and CEO of Ethical Digital. Ethical Digital is changing the trajectory of the internet through inclusive digital marketing strategy, research, training, and certification. Ethical Digital is certified WBE, which I'm going to let her tell you more about, and a B Corp, which I'll also let her tell you more about. She's an award-winning geekist who specializes in technology and digital strategy. She is immersed into deeper questions of the internet. How can more women get involved in technology development? Is Facebook ruining democracy? Does social media cause anxiety? She launched Ethical Digital to study and share the results of these bigger questions. Welcome, Katrina. How are you? I'm great. Thank you. So we're going to ponder big questions here. But before we do that, I want to learn about your journey and what are the aha moments or the pivotal moments in your life that have put you on this path to digital and more specifically on the path to what you're trying to do with ethical digital? Well, I'd say I almost have an accidental journey. It hasn't been a straight line, that's for sure. I grew up in a lot of small towns around Saskatchewan. So that's a, a less populated province in Canada. And I had a lot of less, fewer opportunities than a lot of people in other places. And, you know, I grew up though ambitious and wanting to change the world. My dad's side of the family, it was completely acceptable to be arrested for protesting something, you know, for standing up for the underdog. <laughs> and uh, my mom's side of the family was always hardworking people. So between that, I sort of always have dedicated my life to you know, trying to make the world a better place using different tools. So I worked in nonprofit for years, but you know, I actually ended up sort of falling into technology accidentally. I really sort of took the communications route where I could really see the power of social media, especially in those early days. It, it was such an exciting place. Everybody well, was generally quite kind to each other in those early days of social media. And it was really a way to develop community. So I had several options moments along the way. A lot of them, you know, for example, one of the reasons I got into nonprofit is I couldn't get a job after I had came out of university and ambitious young woman. And that just, it seemed impossible. Right. And this is embarrassing, but I didn't even know the nonprofit world existed. You know, I was from small town. Everybody just took care of each other. And when I moved to a larger center, I just realized it was like, wow, there are a group of people who are doing incredible things with so little money and to really changing people's lives. And I really think that that also sets, you know, a bit of the tone for a lot of the work that I do now in technology. So did you, were you in digital at that point or it sounds like you went the nonprofit route first and then maybe got in the digital? At some point, the things make sense, they converge and that's where I'm trying to get the build up to that convergence. That's right. So I was in, in communications at that, in one of the nonprofits. And so I was building some of the earliest websites and building them. But also, you know, we were working in the area of plain language, helping adults learn to read and write. And so we really had to be very conscious about the words that we used, how we were presenting things on that website so that it was accessible to people. So that really also started that area for me. Then basically, honestly, I was going through a divorce. You know, I felt like everybody was combing through my Facebook. So I got really excited about Twitter at that point. And 
And the Twitter was very interesting because it was just an opportunity to connect. I could reach out to an author that I was reading. I could talk about things that I was interested in with strangers around the world and develop a community there. So it really became one of my very first campaigns. You know, when I was just playing on Twitter, I'm like, I think I could see how to make things trend. So I started kind of playing and I played with a few businesses where we were basically just trying to raise awareness for ourselves. And we were able to reach thousands of people in one day with really more than time, which is what I needed in those early startup days. It wasn't the big money required for television and radio and (laughs) newspapers and all that kind of stuff. So one of the first campaigns that I ran actually after that was I used that same group of people who'd originally been playing. We wanted to do something for social goods. So we went back to my old literacy group and I was able to run a campaign where we reached 2.4 million people in one day with the idea of reaching your kids. And we partnered with one of the big newspaper chains here in Canada. And we had, I think probably one of the first hashtags, raise a reader on the front page of newspapers across Canada. So you could actually see as everybody was waking up, as it was starting, you know, they were going to that hashtag and it was starting to trend across Canada. And it was just such a fascinating thing to watch. And the power of that, before I always, you know, was just so enthralled with film and television, I just thought that was the way to reach a lot of people with a message. But I really realized I was like, wow, digital, you know, it takes some time, it takes some storytelling, it takes a little bit of, you know, energy to put it together, but you can reach millions of people with important ideas. You know, that certainly got me there. So we 2.4 million people were talking about reading to their kids. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah, I think I know what you're talking about because I remember, you know, when growing up thinking, hey, television, radio, all these mass medium things were the way. But now you have this power at your fingertips, you know, at the desktop. So obviously you were very excited. It looked promising. You got into it. But then at some point, what happened to make you think about some of the ethical questions related to what's happening on social media? I love that because kind of the next step of my career is actually talking about that campaign at a tech conference. And at that time, my former business partner approached me and he was an app developer and basically said, listen, we're both social impact entrepreneurs. Why don't I build something off the side of my desk? You share it and, you know, let's change the world a little bit. So I would say we beer stormed our way through the idea and ultimately came up with a technology product. And this is before Facebook Live, like this was years ago, but, you know, it was when video was everywhere online, they were talking about the power video coming on, but it was really difficult to actually create and edit video. So I thought, wouldn't it be great if that was easier? We also had the idea of like capturing senior stories in some way, which then evolved to the idea that everybody has a story that others can learn from, which then evolved into the idea that, well, number one, we needed to pay for this and organizations were willing to pay for it. But it was also organizations are all trying to show the power of their work and their impact. And so it was perfect for us to be able to get capture these stories. And so we created a technology company that was one of the top 15 startups in Canada, was really starting to get a lot of momentum. Unfortunately, that company went under, but I took a lot of lessons from that overall experience. This was in the early days of technology. There'd be conferences with three or 400 people. And, you know, me and the other woman in the room would lock eyes and I got you, girl. (laughs) It was a very uniform group of people who were creating technology and a lot of young people who maybe didn't have a lot of life experience or maybe didn't have the ambition to work and help people. You know, it was really a lot about the bottom line and making money. And, you know, I really saw a lot of the differences between what my approach to technology was versus some of the others I was hearing. And ultimately, that really started me thinking, you know, when that company went under, 
I just realized that the internet's the future. It is one of the most powerful forces that we have in our society right now. I don't even argue it's even more powerful than a lot of governments at this point. You know, we need more women, people of color to actually be participating and using technology as a tool to solve some of the problems that are there seeing in their communities and approaching problem solving in the internet in a different way. And so that's how I really started approaching with ethical digital. There's a, you know, a lot of sort of angles to it, some from the communications side, some from the technology development side, but it's really about the idea of how do we build a better future that, you know, is just more diverse in thought, but also thinking more about what we're creating and how it's actually impacting human beings and their experiences moving forward. So it's a very important conversation that I think we need to be having in this world right now. I think everybody feels, you know, a bit overwhelmed with all the different pressures that are going on, all the different things that are happening post-COVID and, you know, and all those types of things. But this is, for me, one of the most important things that is coming up is how is this massive force actually influencing us as humans and how can we ensure and put some guards in place to make sure that it'll be good for future generations and for others who are wanting to participate in the space. Have you come up with, let's say, three things that you think would definitely help in achieving what you want to achieve? There's this three things that people did, one, two, and three, that you think that would really help? Absolutely. So, you know, I have a lot of different stakeholders I can think of, but, you know, just for the average person listening, one of the big things is actually really being conscious of how digital marketing actually affects you and how your experience online affects your well-being. So we worked with the university and found all the academic research we could find around how, from around the world, around how social media affects our well-being. And spoiler alert, there's absolutely a correlation between social media use and anxiety, depression, depression, self-esteem, sleep issues, you know, all these types of things. And even it's kind of moved from being a correlation. There's some studies that are really starting to point to causation. And so social media is here. It's a very powerful uniting force for a lot of people. It's a great way to build communities. I don't think we're ever going to get rid of it. But how do we work together in a way that we're making sure it's good for your mental health. So part of it is, first of all, just be consciousness, right, of how it affects you. It's a very slow change of your mindset about your values. You know, if you're getting advertised to, it knows a lot about you and can pull you into different areas. Um, And so being conscious of those things first can be one of the very first steps. So congratulations, everybody. You're now conscious of this. And so you're done the first step. I would say the second part is really thinking about limiting your time on social media, even though it's there for connection purposes, just really understanding why you're personally using social media. Are you using it for business? Are you using it because you're lonely? Are you using it because you're just spying on your neighbor? <laughs> you know, like really understanding what your reasons for being there are and ensuring that it's meeting those needs rather than sort of drawing them out because there is sort of a cycle that can happen, especially those who are using it for loneliness is that, you know, if you put something out, you know, if people come back and they're like right away giving comments like, hey, that's great or congratulations, things like that, that can bring a feeling of satisfaction and happiness to people. But if you put something out and it's crickets and this happens to everybody, not just lonely people, (laughs) you know, this happens where you put it and nothing happens, that can actually have a really adverse effect on somebody's mental health. And so 
when you're kind of aware of why you're going to social media and, you know, kind of thinking about what needs is it meeting for you? And then having those activities that follow up with that, you know, if you're actually looking for that community, is there a different place to find it rather than the online space if it's not actually helping you? And I would say the third big thing is for us to be thinking about also how this is affecting our kids. And I know this is a regular conversation that a lot of people are having because a lot of people are seeing it straight up. We're all in this massive experiment where, you know, I have teenagers and the first generation really of people raising kids in this environment where my kids don't know anything. They don't remember not having internet. They don't remember finding joy before you could scroll. (laughs) And so really being conscious about how our children are using it. Also where they are at developmentally, like friends are everything at a certain age group. And you have the added pressure of trying to look a certain way and do things a certain way online that's a really extreme feeling. Plus you're only seeing other people's best stories. So it really adds an extra element to the growing up experience of our young people. So not being angry or anything, but just being very conscious, being aware and thinking about what we can be doing. So ultimately the bottom line is humans just want connection and they want to connect each other. So what can we be doing to make the good things of the internet and social media better? You know, those connection points, those ways of lifting others even better, but also what can we be doing in those darker corners or those lonelier corners to help people actually experience a good experience online and raise them up? It's interesting you're talking about this anxiety and the pressures that people have now, but it seems like a lot of that is actually just keeping up with social media. And it's like before that, we didn't have this pressure. And I mean, now, I mean, most people are trying to keep track of messages on their phone, texting, all the different instant messaging apps. And then you have the social media apps, you know, a handful of them. After a while, it's like, you know, it takes up a lot of time, energy and emotion. So how do you get someone to be more conscious? Because I think guilty of we just get wrapped up in it and need to be responding doing this. How do you actually get people to be conscious and be more selective? Well, if you're not kind of thinking about it from that human connection perspective, you can think about it even from the productivity perspective. To your point, you know, people in Canada on average are spending about two and a half, three hours a day on social media. This was talked about for television back in the past. But, you know, if you think about what could you be doing with your time rather than being on social media for that amount of time? And it's also recommended by most experts that you're actually spending less than half an hour a day on social media, which is not even possible. Like for me, this is what I do professionally. (laughs) And so for a lot of people, it's a very difficult thing. So what we actually recommend is there's a lot of apps out there that can actually, you can put on your computer, you can put on your phone, some social media scroll, you know, options like TikTok, for example, you can actually put limits where it'll, you know, remind you if you've been on for a while, be also be wary of TikTok, you know, their algorithms are so strong, they can really show you information that is so interesting to you. It's one of the major time sucks of all the apps, because it really just pulls people in and, and pulls their attention. And so, you know, you can use apps to help you with that. The other part that we often recommend is sort of leaning into JOMO instead of FOMO. So the joy of missing out instead of the fear of missing out. So FOMO actually has come up only in the last couple of years. It is, it's a rather new term. You know, the idea is that, you know, you're watching your friends have a party online and you're like, I'm not there. I wasn't even invited, right? And that sinking feeling of not being a part of something. Or maybe you have competitors who just won an award or something. And it has that sort of sinking feeling 
feeling rather than lifting feeling. Whereas with Jomo, it's the idea of kind of, you know, like, how can you find joy and be okay? Be like, no, I wasn't on that WhatsApp conversation and that's okay. I actually, I was out for a walk with my dog instead, you know, and things like that. And really starting to lean into things that bring you joy outside of, you know, social media. It doesn't have to be big, you know, but really starting to consciously think about where you put your time because you know there's a lot of people who think your biggest commodity is money i believe your biggest commodity is your attention and where you're putting your energy and so are you kind of letting it dwindle away and be sucked into something you know that's enhancing your life or are you putting your attention towards something that's genuinely gonna you know help you get somewhere around the happiness so those are kind of some of the things i'd say you know use tools when you need to be conscious be thinking about how it's affecting not just your health but your productivity and you know just really be thinking about your long-term goals and how these all work together actually i would probably advocate your most important commodity is probably time right and that's something we all have a limited amount of but we don't know how much right before we get to the point of regulating or using some of these tools i'm wondering have you seen in your work or your research that there's certain steps people go through before they come to that realization that hey i need to be more balanced in my approach to social media i think you know people have heard this you know they read about it they hear about it, but what steps do people actually go through is there something that happens is there like an aha moment as well that they say you know i really need to regulate this more have you seen there's a certain path that people follow I think when a lot of people are finding that they're unhappy is the you know when they actually notice their unhappiness and this can certainly happen too if you're a person who gets drawn into a lot of you know the debates and that sort of thing that can happen online and perhaps you put out a comment and somebody you know negatively you know responded things like that so I think when there's sort of a jarring moment you know that catches people's attention that's one of those moments when they're suddenly like oh I need to make some changes another interesting time is actually kind of falls into the area of social media addiction which is you know of course a bit further along on the spectrum you know everybody's use is on a spectrum but it's very similar to other addictions so so if it's causing problems in your day-to-day, are you finding that you're scrolling instead of working and you know that may, may be causing problems with your employment or your relationships? You're not there for dinner because you're too busy, you know, going through your Facebook, you know, while, while real humans are sitting in front of you. And it could cause those social moments. So I would say if you're finding that social media is impacting your life, where again, your mental health isn't as good you know, your experiences, your relationships with others are being affected. It's just getting in the way of pursuing your goals. Um, Then that's sort of the line right there where you're like, whoa, I'm using this too much. I need to be making some changes. Ultimately, I also just think as humans, I think we all go through times of reckoning in our lives and aha moments (laughs) to, to your point. And I think probably there's a lot of times when people are, you know, maybe they go camping or they're just off grid for a little bit and they suddenly realize how good they're feeling. You know, those are also aha moments too. And so, you know, again, and there's good and bad, right? There's good moments online where you might be like, oh man, so glad I was here. But there are a lot of points that we've seen where people just kind of come to these points of reckoning. And Honestly, I think that there's going to be a lot of risks in the future for employers and employees and that sort of thing, even more so than now, that people will actually have to be paying attention to because in the workplace experience, it'll probably be changing things a lot, even more so than we're seeing today. And so that's some of the other things too, that may be really those moments where it's just affecting crucial parts of your life. So tell me a little bit more about um, you know your startup, uh, Ethical Digital, and also what it means to be WBE certified and a B Corp. 
Yeah. So at Ethical Digital, we are changing the trajectory of the internet. So just a nice, tiny, small goal. (laughs) And we are looking for it to be more inclusive and also just better for human beings. So as part of that, you know, we really lean into the idea of how we can create and use business as a tool for social change. So some people believe business or nonprofit. For me, I'm an and person. I believe you can make money and do good in the world. So Weeby is actually a women-owned business enterprise. And so we're certified in that direction. There's several certifications in North America and around the world to designate that it's at least 50% owned by the companies owned by women. And B Corp's a really interesting area. In the States, it's actually a designation of companies. So you could do nonprofit or corporation or B Corp. In Canada, it is actually more of a certification where it's really rigorous and they, they really examine your business to make sure you are doing good in the world. So it's quite a lot of large companies who are involved in B Corp. There's like Tom's, Patagonia here in Canada, one of our big banks, BDC is a B Corp. But basically, it's an indicator to the world that you're not just thinking about profits. Those are very important too, but you're thinking about people, planet and profits, not or. So building those right in into the fundamental parts of your business is kind of a crucial piece. So we're working in a lot of different ways. We provide digital marketing services that are inclusive and nature, making sure that people with low literacy skills as well as uh, disabilities are able to access a lot of the materials that we're creating for our clients. We also are doing a lot of research. So in addition to the social media and well-being research that we've done, we've also researched how to get more women in venture capital. So venture capital funds the internet. We see women-led companies receiving around 2% of the billions that have gone into the internet in the last little while. So maybe if we change the makeup of the funding body, perhaps we'll see different types of projects being funded and and accelerated. We've got other research underway about how to retain diverse employees for technology companies, as well as we have a huge project underway about how to get more Indigenous women involved in technology development. And so a lot of these research pieces we then distribute and share widely, but then we also turn into corporate training because there's a lot of groups that the corporations are kind of what feeds the internet too. They spend a lot of money in that space. And so if we can be changing some mindsets, you know, amongst these corporations, we can probably see some changes also in the way that the internet functions. And so sort of a big combination. And (laughs) we're also training other marketing companies too, just basically how to look through their content through an ethical lens. And when it comes to the internet and in terms of gender, is there one gender that's more active and present on the internet or, or no, in terms of social media? Yeah, you'll see different platforms have different usage rates. Uh, Women do tend to be higher users of certain platforms, but there's several that men are very, very involved in too. So it just depends on the platform and also, you know, what kind of audience and what kind of content you're putting out. But it is interesting too to see, you know, there's a lot of trends you can see when you start looking at analytics and how people are participating online. There's a lot of young people are mobile first. A lot of people who are of an older generation, not older, but, you know, kind of 30 and tend to be more on their desktops when they're looking through things and doing it at work and stuff like that. And so, you know, there's a lot of different themes that you can be pulling out. And so, yeah, there's some interesting things just going on in different usage statistics that are always changing. So I'm curious, I mean, you're saying that women are more active on the internet, which I think is true. What part of the voice for women is still lacking? You know, a lot of the internet and even digital marketing that was based on analytics behavior that people are doing on the internet. So the linear thinking, a lot of women are on there. Analytics are being incorporated into digital marketing and strategies. So I'm curious, where do you think 
woman's voice is still lacking in the internet and what should be improved? Well, when you're talking about sort of that, those usage statistics, those are sort of women being marketed too. And women tend to be the main ones who are buying for the household. They tend to have a lot of the just power in a family. So actually like there's very specific strategies that just focus on targeting women. So certainly by our purchasing power where, you know, we are a very powerful force online, but it's sort of more of the backend mechanics of how the whole internet works. As I mentioned, only about 2% of women-led companies are funded you know, to a certain degree to, to actually have them have those big reaches. It's also, I think there's only about 6% in Canada of technology companies are actually founded by women. And so that's quite low in itself. I think the internet, this number might be a bit off, but it's around 25% of women actually just work in general in different forms in the space. And so it's really about the creation of the internet. And what they say is that you need to be about 30%. Prior to that, the majority really influences you. You kind of conform to what the majority says. But when your group gets to be about 30%, that's when you start to influence the bigger group. And so we really need to see those changes happen in order to really see that true influence and that change. And what I would argue too, and this is a personal opinion, is that a lot of women are motivated more by community and by, you know, taking care of families in the whole. So a lot of our solutions are different when we're creating technology. And I think these are equally valuable and equally important to get out there, but they may not have the broad appeal to some of our funding people. So for example, Spanx, you know, it's a company that basically sucks you in <laughs> under your clothes and, you know, and, and it's basically nylons for your whole body and for women. And it took her a very long time time to get funded because this was a problem that women were facing rather than men. Now she did it and she was able to go through a lot of processes to make it. Now she's an excellent success story with a multi-billion dollar company, you know, things like that. But it's an example of oftentimes, you know, if you're an investor, you're going to see the problems. You're going to want to invest the problems that you know. We need to kind of diversify that investor base so that we can see other problems being solved in a different form. And I really think we'll see a different internet in the future if we have more diverse voices creating the products that we're using. Yeah. Do you know the story about Spanx? I mean, I guess it sounds, it sounds like you do. Yeah, it's an interesting business and it was really quite exciting. You know, the success is exciting. Yeah. Yeah, it was actually uh, Sarah Blakely is what you're talking about. And she actually, people didn't think there was a need for the product actually, which was interesting. And she was you know trying to sell it to a lot of men-owned businesses in the garment industry, right? And they just didn't understand the problem. And do you know how she finally sold the problem? Even to a woman buyer. Do you know how she finally sold it? Do you know the story? Yeah, I do know the story. We should tell everybody, Yeah. <laughs> She went into the restroom and she had actually demonstrated to the woman and then she got it instantly. So it took away all the lines and everything and it just took off. But it was funny. It was just a really interesting story. It's a really good story. It's a good example. Again, like it's not that anybody's like sitting there going, ha, let me keep down women on the internet, right? It's just, you know, you only are going to invest in what you know. And, you know, because probably a good just rule of thumb in general, <laughs> we need more diverse people who are solving these problems and seeing these problems. And we'll start to see some extreme success, I think, in the future. So going to these now, a lot of the internet's run on algorithms now. AI is playing a big role. How do you see the role of, you know, algorithms playing and shaping the human experience online, but then also in terms of, Ethical, right? I mean, how are you addressing that? 
Well, there's some fundamental issues and AI is a huge can of worms when it comes to ethics. There's a lot of people who are weighing in on different sides of it and all quite valid in belief. And so it's interesting around AI. So AI, one of the first things to think about when you think about artificial intelligence, it's a way of organizing data. You know, it's basically have these data sets, like here's what Katrina is doing online, but oh, here's what a thousand people are doing online. And, you know, okay, wait, we can see when they do this, the next step is usually this. So we'll just do it for them. You know, things like that. There's really good things that come out of algorithms. Like I even said, you know, some people would argue that the TikTok algorithms are like, thank you for finding things that I love, constantly entertaining me, right? And, you know, Netflix and a lot of things that we use in our day-to-day are already using AI to give you suggestions for things that you'd like. And, you know, where the problems around the ethics come in, there's, you know, and there's a lot of conversations going on. But one of the fundamental parts of it is really about, you know, how do we actually put that data together to tell a story? There's, you know, examples that have been used for a while, like hiring programs, for example, big corporations receive thousands of applications. And so they have a computer basically sort through those applications and come out. But what they found is whoever's kind of programming those algorithms tend to put in their own bias. So certain names might be automatically decreased. Yes, you know, if it shows that someone's a man or a woman, it might be accidental, but you know, it kind of will automatically kick out the resume. There's just things like that. So there's some obvious things that a lot of AI developers are looking for. Like they're really, there's a lot of conversation going on around the idea of AI bias. But it is one of those things that's fundamental. Whoever's creating it, man, woman, you know, whatever culture is going to have bias. We're all human beings and how we create things and see things is always going to have parameters and boundaries. So how do we kind of govern that to make sure that we're not excluding people and continue to perpetuate that? Because it's one of those things where, again, it's really important to have a lot of diverse people involved in these decision-making processes to ensure that, you know, we're not accidentally discriminating against people and people don't even realize it's sort of a quiet thing going on in the background of, you know, this thing that's going on and nobody even notices that that's the reason. You know, that's kind of what basically one, one of the fundamental things that I have around AI is, is that we have to be really careful with the data we're using and how we're distributing it. And also, I could keep going, actually, I just got excited there, but, you know, making sure we're not stealing data and all that. No, no, that's fine. I think part of what you're saying is that AI, even though it's called artificial intelligence, it's actually more automated intelligence, Right basically seeing patterns in large amounts of data. To me, artificial intelligence would need the, I think the component that's probably lacking, which is the human emotional component, right? And intuition. I'm not saying we're not going to get there. We might get there. But at this point, to me, it's just more automated intelligence. That's what I'm saying. Let's say we want to be ethical, but at the same time, these algorithms are based on human behavior that's actually happening, right? These are decisions. These are things that humans are doing. And overall, I would say, Probably in the larger scheme of data, most people are ethical. So that's probably the good thing. It's not, I don't think most people are unethical, but you are still, again, always have a few bad apples that change that and that are going to impact the algorithm. It's going to be interesting to see how this all plays out. But I'm curious, have you seen any research that also shows that diversity actually leads to becoming more ethical? Or does it stay the same? Or does it actually go the other way? You know, what a great question. I wouldn't say I have the direct line in that way, but one of the things that's always stuck with me, it was a Harvard Business Review article basically said that diverse teams are 19% more profitable. And, you know, so if you're looking at it from that business perspective, and the reason that is, is because they're often able to see risks or opportunities a lot differently than a homogenous group. They're able to source opportunities in different forms. And 
So when you are thinking about that diversity piece, for me, it's maybe not the idea around the ethics of it. And, you know, probably different cultures are even going to have different ethics, right? Well, that's what I'm saying. Because diversity means, I mean, the culture, there's lots of differences. What might work in one culture may not be other, could be unethical. But I think you're right. I mean, you know, in terms of business sense, that makes sense in terms of being more profitable because you get a wider viewpoint and you see opportunities. But I am curious with this ethics part. Yeah, no. And it's one of those questions, like for us, people are like, well, what qualifies you to be you know, ethical and make these decisions? And ultimately for me, I'm like, actually, we're relying on academia to basically, and it's about what's good for humans, you know, less about different cultural values. But of course we can get super deep into, okay, well, are there values there? <laughs> it's a bit of an art rather than a science, but it is one of those things that to me, the more people who are contributing to these conversations, you know, the further we're going to go in terms of meeting that middle ground and hopefully finding a place that, you know, we can be reaching the most people's needs as possible. And of course, ethics are fluid too, right? I mean, that can change with technology as new technologies come about. I mean, we may change the way we view certain things and it's not completely static either. So it's, it's very interesting. We can even see, you know, cancel culture is a great example of that right now, right? Something that would have been really funny to say in the 80s, you know, can get someone fired right now. <laughs> and so, you know, so it's a lot of different lines around all of these different pieces. Usually where we sort of sit, is it good for human beings? And so, you know, what does academia tell us about that particular angle? the outcomes if we take certain paths, you know, that are proven, what does that look like? And so that's basically where we're at and where we kind of, you know, put our, our line in the sand. But, you know, we, there's a lot of people who'd feel differently about that. You know, maybe people who'd want to go further. There's other people who want to back right off, right? And from my perspective, like, I love the Wild West, the internet. I love the idea that someone can have an idea and completely, you know, create something magical, you know, in some form, whatever that looks like. And I think that's the beauty of that experience. There's really no gatekeepers to creating online. But if you really want to have something that's large and has an impact there, you need some funds, things like that. And so you do need to sort of start to access some of these higher levels of funding. And then that's where some of the inequalities really become apparent. So that's where I kind of look at it, where I'm like, I love the internet. I love its madness and its, <laughs> its, its wildness. Yeah. But I also, and I love the people, the idea that there's a lot of people who have a place of expression and connection with others. But I also think that there are some things that we can be doing. You know, we are in a global space. It's affecting us globally to ensure that we're doing the best that we can to make sure that even going forward again for future generations that we're seeing a really good foundation and we put efforts in to making it a good place for not just us, not even just our grandkids, but, you know, 12 generations down the road, if this is still existing in its form. So when it comes to digital marketing, are there three things that you think brands could do to be more inclusive? Absolutely. So one of the the one things that came out of our research that was really interesting is around the idea of FOMO. And again, we talked about that earlier, the fear of missing out. So there's small language changes that we can be making just in our posts that, you know, FOMO in like, get your tickets now, <laughs> do it or you suck, <laughs> you know, like those kind of not that extreme, but you know, like that really extreme in your face type marketing. 
yes, it's effective. It's, you know, gets people to take an action. But for those who are suffering from anxiety, which is higher than ever in our society right now, it actually provides an unnecessary push into an emotional area that maybe isn't necessary. So how about us as content creators actually thinking about, you know, I can be just as effective without using FOMO and have just as an effective messaging. So yes, it's effective, but I just don't use it. Other things that we can be doing, of course, is just the you know, using a lot of diverse images and diverse language pieces, ensuring, you know, it's very difficult right now. I'm doing a grand reveal here a little bit early, but I won't get too deep into it. But we're actually working on an AI product right now that's in the language world. And so there's a lot of things that are out there to actually help us with our language. One of the big problems with it and how it's, as you're to your point, that the internet is changing so much and there's little pockets of the internet and pockets of communities that are changing the language around how they want to be referred, things like that. You know, it's impossible for any communications person, no matter how good they are, to be able to track that, you know, and not offend somebody somewhere at some point. (laughs) So we're trying to actually develop products to help with that. But it's also one of those things, too, where, you know, things like Grammarly, there are some technology products out there, uh, Fair Words, for example, where you can actually put these programs on and they can help you with your language and help you find, you know, the right terms and sort of teach you maybe some of the language and why some terms might be offensive, things like that. So actually diving in a little bit more into the types of words and things that we're saying can also be very, very effective for people. And I actually think thirdly, this is from a corporate perspective, but also from a communications perspective, I kind of went down this path because I was quite concerned as as being a digital strategist and creating content for my clients. I was like, am I the next tobacco company based on some of the things that I was seeing online and the way I see it was affecting people? So that's what really sent me down this path. I think as communications professional, anybody who's using the internet as a space to communicate has a vested interest in trying to make it as comfortable as possible for people to come there. You know, as I mentioned earlier, a lot of people leave social media platforms because it's just, you know, it's offensive or it's hurting them in some way. And, you know, if we're kind of constantly playing into these algorithms and into these ways that are dividing people and, you know, and putting out content that, you know, is making people feel worse, that's worse for all of us in the long run. But if we're all working together to create things that are creating a good environment, that are making people feel welcome and like they belong, that are, you know, truly connecting with people and engaging with them, then that's a totally different story. So those are kind of the the angles that I would take is, again, fundamentally, sales is about connecting with people. And, you know, that's what we're all here to do is connect. And, you know, social media is no different. So what can we be doing as a profession and as communications professionals, but also as business owners and corporations is really around the idea of understanding that's what the human area is. Let's insert that and ensure it's foremost in what we're creating for the online space. How would you like to see digital marketing evolve moving forward? I would love to see a space where people do feel included, where they're able to find their communities very quickly, where it's less volatile, like a lot of the algorithms right now do, you know, if there's a lot of conversation going back and forth, it'll show up on a lot more people's feeds. But a lot of that conversation can be unproductive and painful. I would love to see more people having to do video responses to things rather than writing anonymously. One of the things when I had a tech company uh, that we started there that was had that video platform is one of the things that we learned, we had thousands of people putting videos from around the world, telling very intimate stories on our platform. And we had all sorts of plans in place to deal with trolls or people who were making others feel bad. And it just didn't happen. Now it would have, I'm sure over time, but 
part of the reason why we're kind of researching that piece was, you know, the idea of seeing someone's eyes. And when you can see someone's eyes as they're telling their story, it actually really changes the way that we deal with empathy and the way that that brings out our experience. And so having those video responses and sometimes having a lot more of those stories through a video perspective, I think can be just as powerful to starting to bring more empathy into the internet and having people truly connect with each other. And instead of doing a flippant remark, you know, where you kind of put your pain out onto someone else in the internet, it actually does elevate the type of conversation and helps us understand each other better. So I'd love, you know, just some more accountability in terms of how we're treating each other online. And, you know, some of these pieces, some of the things that are ruining the space, you know, like fake news, fake reviews, you know, things that, you know, people just putting out content to divide people. I think in the future, like that sort of, you know, it's the apple that spoils the barrel kind of thing. You know, we don't, we we need to be really conscious of some of these fringe activities that are happening that really do have a huge impact on the way we're engaging with each other. Start to rein those in because it will erode trust in the internet and erode, you know, just overall the experience online unless we start to rein in some of the negative things that are on there. I'm curious, um, based on your research and the work you've done, when it comes to digital social media, on the whole, are you optimistic that things will get better or pessimistic? I'm optimistic. (laughs) And why? Yeah, I'm a true believer in the goodness of people. And that's one thing we have to remember is it's always people who are creating these things. And again, like, for example, Facebook, there's a lot of issues, but I truly don't believe Mark Zuckerberg was like, I can't wait to have teenage girls feel suicidal after going on Instagram. I don't believe that. But what I do, and I believe he started it with the best of intentions. But what I do believe is he now has, you know, that platform has enough money, data, smart people that when they realize there's issues, instead of just sort of turning a blind eye, they should be experimenting and constantly figuring out the next path that's better for people, not for the bottom line. And I understand that, you know, it's a corporation, they have things that they're looking for, but they're now in a different position in terms of their influence in our world that they have to do something. So where I'm at is I truly believe the world will be better in the future. I believe the internet is in this amazing connection point, but I do believe that, you know, we've kind of kids in a candy store, we maybe like have eaten a bit too much (laughs) at the beginning. And so let's figure out a way, you know, to use it in a way that's good for us, you know, that provides joy and, you know, connection, but also in a way that it's not taking over our lives in the way that it does right now. So I'm thinking what I'm hearing you say, we need more B Corps instead of just C Corps. That's right. That's right. People, planet and profit, not So if you could have lunch with anybody in the world related to digital marketing, who would it be and why? Do you know, there's several. I've been lucky because it's a reasonably weirdly small world. uh, So I've even got to meet some of the people I admire. But I would say pie in the sky, everybody would say this, but Oprah, I would love to talk to her. She's used communications for good, you know, her entire life and really used, you know, her resources that she had to really share good stories and lift people. I also, just somebody who's interesting to me because they're so dedicated and they've really built something really interesting is Neil Patel. Uh, He does a lot of work around SEO and search engine optimization. And basically, how do you set things up so that you get a lot of traffic to your website and thus sales? And he's done an excellent job of that too. So yeah, so there's a couple of people that I think are pretty awesome. And so just kind of watching their world and enjoying what they're creating. Nice. Well, I appreciate you joining my podcast and uh, sharing your aha moments and your story, as well as, you know, what you're doing. I think it's very important what you're doing, and I encourage you to stick with it. And I, too, am an optimist, so that's good. 
And uh, I'm looking forward to seeing, you know, how you are going to make the dent in the internet since you have such a small goal, right? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> no, but I, I think after talking to you, I can tell you're you're on a mission to do it. And I think you are going to make an impact. So that's good. Well, thank you so much. And honestly, thank you for allowing me to be on your podcast, because the more I can share these ideas, the more people can start sharing them in their world. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Uh, great talking to you, Katrina. Thank you. Getting to AHA was brought to you by iResearch. To find out more about us, head to iResearch.com. And make sure to search for Getting to AHA in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else podcasts are found. And don't forget to click follow to ensure you don't miss any future episodes. Thank you for listening.